Hello, I'm your host, Grayson Brulte. Welcome to another episode of SAE Tomorrow Today, a show about emerging technology and trends in mobility with leaders and innovators who make it all happen. On today's episode, we're absolutely honored to be joined by Camille Terry and Yvette Ellis, co-founders of ChargerHelp, and Frank Manchaka, president of SAE Sustainable Mobility Solutions. On this episode, we'll discuss ChargerHelp's partnership with SAE and the importance of having a certified trained workforce to build a safe and sustainable EV infrastructure. We hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Grayson. Great to be here. It's wonderful to have you here because ChargerHelp is solving a major problem with charger reliability. Consumers are worried about if they go to a charger, is it going to be up and operating and charging reliability is the future. So I can't wait to to dive into this conversation as we kick it off of it. I mentioned the anxiety that consumers face, but what did you see in the market that led you to co-founding ChargerHelp? Well, let's be clear. I, I didn't see anything initially. Camille saw it. <laughs> um, so I'll let her tell you what she found, but and then I'll go into why I decided to co-found um, ChargerHelp with her. So Camille, what did you see? And then I'll jump in. <laughs> Totally fair. Yeah, I used to work for a software company um, that made software for EV charging stations. And what I was seeing in the market was two things. One was that um, keeping stations working was a lot harder than folks thought. And then two, the workforce that we had today at that time period, which was typically, you know, electricians, weren't necessarily the best workforce for the issues that we were seeing out in the field. Um, and so that's why, you know, I thought about creating Charger Hope is to figure out how do you, you know, get these stations working and going. And then two, you know, was there an opportunity to create a new workforce of the future or for the future? Yeah. And I'll say after Camille <laughs> had this brilliant idea and we chatted about what co-foundership um, would be for Charger Help, you know, initially, you know, I thought it was brilliant, but I didn't quite see where I fit in because my entire career history has been workforce development. She's like, duh, that's that's the missing piece. So what I do know how to do is help folks get a job, figure out their skill set, transition folks, retention, all that jazz is what I know how to do. And that's exactly what she was looking for. So we just really looked at the division of labor and how much of uh, technology policy and workforce development will come into the fold. And, you know, when I saw a fit, a good market fit for me, I decided to uh, team up with Camille. One of the best decisions ever. You said best decision ever? Oh, yeah, easy. I said one of the best decisions. <laughs> she has a new baby, so I've been de-escalating in the ranking My kid of, of, is of the other best decision. <laughs> it's absolutely wonderful, and, and congratulations on the new baby. Uh, Yvette, from the workforce development standpoint, are you getting applicants to come to the program that are very excited to this, that, that see the future? Or are you having to do community outreach to describe the benefits of what your program offers? You know, it's a it's a mixture of two, depending on what part of the workforce development ecosystem you're working with. But I will say just right off the bat, people hear about Charger Health, they're excited they definitely see Charger Help as an opportunity for them to get in on the new green economy and be a part of a sustainable solution. I think folks, especially um, in what people call priority or underserved communities, are much more knowledgeable, much more excited than people actually think. 
So it has not been a hard ask or, or a hard thing to attract people. When we first initially went out to recruit our initial technicians, we were recruiting for 20 positions and we got over 1,600 applicants. Uh, <laughs> and so, no, no shortage of people wanting to be involved. I do think when you work with workforce development programs, centers, agencies, organizations, I do think, you know, you have to make sure that I call them the gatekeepers who are the workforce development specialists and experts that they understand the opportunity. They understand the industry and what's happening because then they can properly convey the information to the folks who are seeking new skills, a job, a more earning potential. Um, so I think with programs, it's making sure that the folks that are actually boots on the ground working with folks get it. There's clearly a demand, 1,600 applications for 20 spots. That's impressive. You're doing one heck of a job and you're validating the market demand there. And what Camille did with, with her, her hypothesis, she validated the, the market demand that the, there wasn't the workforce that was clearly there. And the charger uptime was an issue there. Frank, I'm going to say your, your boots, your boots on the ground, you understand the whole sustainable economy, you, you have a really good understanding of, of EVs. How would you describe the current state of the out of home EV charging market? Is it getting better? Is, uh, is uptime reliability increasing? Or, or what are your general thoughts on the market, Frank? Yeah, the EV home market or the EV charging home market, I think, is obviously expanding. Um, however, um, you know what? Uh, it's, it's interesting that you bring it up because I was just talking to someone today who is from a major OEM. Um, you know, who said, "Well, we had to go out and actually contract with a company that could put the home unit in." People are going in to buy electric vehicles, but there's not really a reliable sort of home installation market. Well, do I call my electrician? Well, what if you live in a place where your electrician doesn't have that you know, skill set or that experience? So I think the, the EV home market is, um, it is maybe kind of all over the place. And then for people who live in multi-unit dwellings, you know, that is, uh, you know, th that's, that's, that's a complicated issue, um, you know. If you're in an apartment building with, you know, 20 apartments and two chargers, um, you know, that's that's a that's an issue. So so the the public charging that charger helps, you know, helps to support and expand is super important for building customer customer acceptance of EVs and customer confidence. And without customer acceptance and customer confidence, the 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 net zero emission promise of EVs really isn't going to be, you know, isn't going to be fulfilled because people will be reluctant or slow to, to, to take them up. And they're going to, it's, the business is going to become challenging for OEMs and suppliers. So I see the reliability question really as kind of the pivot around which the entire industry is going to turn for a good long time until we get to a point where the charging infrastructure is really robust and we have um, you know, public confidence in charging and we have a really well-defined program for maintenance of those chargers. And that's where Charger Help is, I think, an early pioneer in all of this. You hit the nail on the head, Frank. 
I, I, it started with range anxiety. Remember, oh, the vehicle only goes 100 miles, 200 miles, and then the Lucid Air went 400, and now there's various other vehicles, Tesla's, Mercedes are going 400 miles. So the range anxiety debate to me has been settled. But now we have charging anxiety. If you're on your with your family and you're, you're going on a, on, a, on a road trip, and I talked about this one on a previous podcast from my house in South Florida to Disney World, you you have to hope that the and pray that the, the chargers work because it creates anxiety and you get to Disney World and you're stressed out. Is this where charger help comes in, Frank? They can help overcome that anxiety. So let's say Acme Charging has a contract with charger help. They can come in and then the customers will, oh, this is great. I'm not going to have to worry. Is that how we relieve that anxiety? I think I think that's an important part of it. I think charger help is, is helping to build by, by creating a workforce of field technicians that are, that are able to diagnose and service these, these charging stations. Charger help is helping to, cre- helping to raise the level of reliability and therefore raise um, consumer confidence. The other really important role that, that needs to be recognized is that charger help by having a programmatic approach to these diagnostics is a valuable source of information for how to improve not only the user experience, but actually the engineering. You know, a tremendous amount of information gets exchanged in these charging sessions. And that information is valuable to the consumer, it's valuable to the, uh, the vehicle manufacturer, it's valuable to the charging provider. And I think the field technician is someone who is kind of the first point of contact for those diagnostics. And if we do a good job at capturing that information, that's that's a that that's information that does good to the entire ecosystem. So it's not just you know customer confidence or alleviating range anxiety or charge anxiety. It's also helping to build a better vehicle. Camille, in my opinion, that's where charger help comes in. You have the field technicians; they're out there looking at at, at a variety of chargers. In your opinion, what can be done to increase the uptime at public EV charging stations? They have to potentially, if there's one that's in a salty environment, they have to be hardened for the elements. Have you seen any trends that have emerged that can help the uptime reliability? Yeah, it's so interesting. So many of like, I think the problem, so there's two sets of problems, right? You have low hanging fruit problems, which is like, you know, the connector being cut, you know, some of the physical things. But I think there is a, a higher, you know, problem that I think will grow exponentially as we have more connected devices. And it, it really comes back down to how do we understand software interoperability? How do we how do we think about data sharing? And then also, how do we bring forth, you know, error codes in order for us to make actionable steps. And most importantly, you know, how do you identify which component actually has the issue? Um, and that's one of the reasons I've, you know, have hats off to SAE because they've done a tremendous role just in identifying this sometimes standardization around just error codes. Like how crazy is that, right? Like you have a machine that is emitting an error code that like folks get in, they're like, well, I don't know what to do, right? So I think one is definitely like, okay, how are we thinking about collaboration around data sharing? Um, I definitely think the second piece is also collaboration around training. You know, every machine that comes out has a different way on how folks want it to be trained. So how are we thinking about, you know, con- continuing the collaboration post what we're doing right now with SAE when, when the new versions of hardware comes out? And then how do we track that and ensure that people are safely interacting with these machines, right? Like, what is the standardization? And then the, the final point, which I don't think we talk too much about, is where is the responsibility of site hosts in this whole ecosystem, 
right? You have businesses, small business, multi-unit dwellings, you know, all of these folks who have gotten charging infrastructure for free. But if I need to go on site to maybe do something for a campaign and you're not answering the phone or you haven't updated who the right point of contact is, but your charging station is there for the public good, where is that responsibility lie there? And I think oftentimes a society is very easy to call out certain groups as like, you know, the people that are performing poorly. And I think you know, network providers have taken the brunt of that. But I think that this problem is a little bit more complex. And I think in order to have high uptimes, we have to get into the complexity, which isn't fun and it's messy and it's annoying. But I, I, I don't believe that we'll get anywhere else unless we start having these deeper conversations, which I'll say with last thing I'll say is like the reason why we sit so heavily on data and tracking as a field service organization is because now we can bring to light these conversations through quantitative. And I can point to and say like, hey, I tried to do X and my barrier was because I didn't even know who to call at the location. And that's why the station has been broken. Like, <laughs> you know, we're able to, 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 to track those things. Site host responsibility. Thank you for, for, for bringing that up. That is an issue because if it's at a, a multifamily dwelling and if it's a corporation that owns several apartment buildings and nobody picks the phone up, how do you fix it? It hurts It hurts the environment and it hurts the individuals that, that live in that multifamily. How do you see that responsibility changing? Is there some, through the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, are there certain standards that you put in there saying, if you're going to put a charger for the public good, you have to meet X amount of uptime. Do you see something like that to try and stop this? Yes. I, you know, with the, the 97% uptime guideline, you know, I, I think that is a way. I, I, I believe as an industry, we've been trying to like, force an uptime metric that just identifies what network providers are doing well. But I think we have to take a further step back and say, what is the uptime metric for the driver experience? And and, and who are the responsible parties for each of these places? And I, I, I worry that my industry, you know, at this industry that we're so, you know, we're afraid of, <laughs> you know, not being seen as like the bad corporates instead of looking at this from a more holistic space and to say like, sometimes it isn't your fault as a network provider. It's literally because like Joe at X property won't answer the phone so you can block off the parking to do the upgrade on the station. Like <laughs> it wasn't your fault, you know? So I do think that we need to have a better uptime that has multiple responsible parties and not have this narrow view that's only aligned with, you know, network providers. A vet from a workforce development with your, with your field technicians, how do you train them for these various scenarios since, as, as Camille said, the chargers change, the, the hardware upgrades, the environments that your field technicians are going to work. They could be in an open parking lot working on a charger. They could be in a multifamily dwelling or they could be in a controlled access area. How do you prepare your technicians from workforce development for, for all the different scenarios that they're going to run into as they work to keep the chargers up and running? Yeah, we're very transparent and open company. So we talk about like what the challenges are in real time. First of all, <laughs> we don't know everything. And as they come, we handle them. Uh, we are really, really starting to practice uh, this this brainstorming, this idea that it's not one person with all the answers. So with that, when we come into challenges for elements, you know, we use our field service manager, we use our safety and compliance person, we use our logistics person, our head of ops, we even use product, right? Like how does it all work together to, you know, really assist the technician that's in the field? But I will say how we've done it so far is, you know, 
eventually everybody will know everything. But right now, our Arizona tech is in 109 degree weather, right? So we don't need to call everybody. We really need to focus on this AZ (laughs) person. Our Pacific Northwestern people have been in rain for a month, right? And my New York tech is in snow. So we troubleshoot by region and we troubleshoot by what exactly we're dealing with. We don't make it bigger than what it is. Um, and safety is first here at Charger Help. So our safety person is always um, a part of it. And I think what we learn from that, what we learn from snow in New York, we then share with everyone. So when we encounter snow again, now we have a process. Now we have something to work with and an example. So I just think using the entire team's brain as one has been really, really helpful for us to troubleshoot quickly and still get the work done. And the, and the part that I think that is most important is like we're recording all of this, right? Because this is the first time we've had a distributed IoT asset that is literally everywhere. So not only are we recording, you know, what are the elements or what are the things that this technician needs to be successful within these different spaces, but then also how is the charging station behaving? Are there any, you know, commonalities on the issues that we see that are impeded by weather. And I think like that's the part that's scalable because we can problem solve today, but it's like, how do we take our learnings and allow it to be helpful towards the entire industry? You're getting a data set. You're getting a very, very healthy data set that's going to allow you, frankly, to learn. You're going to spot trends and patterns that will that will increase the reliability because 97% uptime, that's a difficult task, but your technicians are out there they're learning. They're getting workforce development. And Frank, we've discussed uptime's critical. Without, I'll use the word trust. Without the public trusting when they go to a station that it's going to work, the EV adoption is going to plat- plateau at some point. But if they trust when they go that it's going to work, all right, we're, we're going all in on EVs. Char- Charger Help, they've got a really interesting data set that could potentially help SAE learn a lot as you develop potential standards through a committee. Frank, why did Charger Help and SAE International Sustainable Mobility Solutions form a partnership? Yeah, it's a great question. So um, we embarked on this effort to really address some of the things that Camille mentioned in reliability. So we brought together a group of leading OEMs and charge providers and suppliers. And, you know, we had this discussion and it was immediate. You know, they said, well, if you want to really solve something, solve what's immediately wrong. You know, uh, why does charging fail? There's some some estimations that charging fails 25% of the time. And so address that. And when we got, uh, you know, when we kind of peeled the onion, we understood that, yeah, yeah, there's there's charging failure, but we don't really understand what charging failure is very well because there are error codes that are thrown off in the, um, you know, in the charging session, but they're not, they're not named in any consistent way. They're not benchmarked in any consistent way. It makes it very hard to compare them. It makes it very hard to learn anything. It makes it very hard to, you know, to, to do better. So we set out to, um, to address that. And very quickly, one of our partners said, you know, you really need to talk to Charger Help. You know, they have a lot to say about this. And um, we connected with Camille and the team and, and went out and visited and I think we came away understanding that, yeah, this is a good place to start. Start where there is failure, create a better way of analyzing that failure, create a consistent vocabulary. It sounds simple, but, um, but, 
but, but, but it's hard. It, it, it really hadn't been done before. So we did, you know, a, a charging reliability technical framework that is now forming the basis of something called the National Charging Experience Consortium, which is sponsored by several national labs uh, with involvement from the DOE, the Department of Energy, Department of Transportation. So from, from a relatively simple set of problems, like why does charging fail? You know, we've now kind of gotten to a point where there's a much more systematic way of looking at all of this. Um, so that's really the that's really where our our paths kind of cross with Charger Help, and it's helped us to develop this this you know charging reliability project. And now we're engaged in you know uh, developing a set of certifications around the um, electric vehicle charging supply equipment field technician. So it's it's just kind of a, you know it's kind of scaffolded one piece building on another. I'll summarize it this way. EV charging is growing up. It's, 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 it's growing up. Camille, Frank laid out a lot of positive things for both SAE and for Charge Health, but more importantly, positive for society. What are you hoping to achieve with this partnership? Yeah, for us, you know, E and I have built the company underneath with the foundation of, of, of equitable jobs. I think like that was like the biggest thing for us was like, hey, they're, there are multiple problems in society that we can actually fill with good paying jobs and like quality people. Technology can help bridge the educational gap. You know, there's certain things that can help bridge whatever it is. If there is a gap, sometimes there's not even a gap, right? But we can properly align folks. And so what I'm really excited with this partnership is that we never intended that every field service person had to work for Charger Help. That's not our goal. We are a technology company. We had to have our own technicians in the beginning in order to properly build out a field service app to properly understand what are the skill sets and to make sure that the industry was approaching, you know, workforce development of green jobs from an equitable mindset. And as two black women run from South Central, another from Compton, these are things that is like it is our lived experience. So I don't know how to operate without thinking about like equity and folks in my community participating. And so what I'm super excited about, because I'm all about how do we scale these things, I think doing the partnership with SAE gives that idea legs, credibility, and allows a realistic scalability. And, and, and you know, what you're saying, these tools for these folks in these communities, and communities in general, like rural communities, white, poor communities, to participate in a meaningful way for a problem that is <laughs> greatly impacted us that we haven't figured out yet. Um, so it just brings me immense amount of joy um, to be able to partner with SAE to take this little idea that E and I had had, you know, to that next level. You're taking it to the next level, but you're doing good in, in your community. You're you're doing good in other communities because, as I said earlier, you're creating jobs. But let's go into the the jobs. It seems that the skill sets you can have an electrician and a potential an operations individual. Could you talk about some of the skill sets to going through your program that these individuals will learn? And then on the backside, are those skills transferable to perhaps another industry down the line? Absolutely. So first thing I want to clear up is our EBSE technicians are not electricians. However, the electrician route is a pathway for those that are field techs. I mean, it's actually a very natural pathway for them, career pathway. So super excited about that. I will say the skill sets initially 
who we found to be most successful were folks that had some background experience in field service. First of all, they understood like it's not just doing a job. Field service is you're actually driving around, you're in the elements. There's a whole nother component to field service outside of the actual job that you're doing. So, you know, field service experience just is very helpful because they don't get worn out as quick because they understand the mission. (laughs) But also those who worked in gas and oil, believe it or not, have been very, very successful in our at our company in this industry, mainly because of the safety precautions are so high in the gas and oil industry working at a refinery. Like those are some safe folks. I don't know if you ever met. They are very safe. Okay. And so because of that, we we proudly don't have any safety. We didn't have any safety concerns last year, but we have folks that are just really laser focused on that. And then we find folks that worked in clothing factories that worked with like small machinery that was very, you know, meticulous. (laughs) And you really had to know how to work this one thing and that were curious and would keep digging and digging. And then lastly, folks that worked uh, with the cable company or the internet company and they know they have field service, of course, but they know also they have some electrical, you know, insight there. They know the the basics. Right. And that was very helpful. Then I don't want to miss out on the folks that we did have the opportunity to hire people that had absolutely no nothing. Right. And we were able to ramp them up in two different uh, timelines. Right. But we were able to leave a percentage of the folks that we trained. You know, some folks didn't have any. And this was their entry. Right. Their introduction into this industry. And we're really, really proud of that. But I would say being able to assess a situation, be curious, be safe, being able to have great customer service skills. You know, service excellence is is is, you know, what and what with our safety here. But being able to communicate with our customers in a lot of instances, internally work remotely, be virtual. I mean, there's a lot of moving parts to being a field service technician. And that's just one position. Uh, We have the most folks in that position, but we also have an entire operations team, logistics Uh, We have a field service manager. We have safety and compliance. We have a government relations person. Uh, (laughs) We have product, the product team, sales. Uh, So there's a a workforce development. We have a trainer for internal and external training. So there's a number of connecting um, positions and pathways to this. One thing I will say as far as like uh, stackable certifications are career paths that are connected to it. What we've seen is some of our workforce development development partners uh, have connected like program um, project management with the EVSC technician curriculum, right? So you can find a project manager anywhere, but can you find a project manager that has EVSC knowledge base, right? Which made them super marketable <laughs> and they flew, I'd say they flew off the shelves very quickly once they completed the training and they had their um, project management, also sales and, and parts management. Like you will find that you can find these folks, but they don't necessarily have insight into the EVSE ecosystem. And this training also serves as a foundational piece for folks that uh, will be doing different jobs, but in this space. So we're really excited about that. I don't know if we started off thinking that. <laughs> I don't believe we did. We were very focused on the EVSE technician. 
But, you know, our workforce development partners have gotten really, really creative with how can we push this out and allow more people to participate um, in this space because everybody won't be EVSC technicians, right? Everybody won't be, but that doesn't mean that the material and the information will not be very helpful to our industry with folks in other positions. Frank, from an SAE perspective, SAE does a lot of really, I'll say, Frank, very bluntly, wonderful work around workforce development. You have the, the, the college programs, the, the, the Baja program, and earlier you mentioned certification. What will that process look like when when SAE puts all the good that SAE does into a, into a certification process for this? Yeah, so we, um, we're working with a set of experts from major uh, vehicle manufacturers and charging providers and service providers and uh, obviously Charger Help is involved. Um, we're defining a set of capabilities that, that, that we as a community believe has to be established. And then we're creating a, a program based on the, the Charger Help training and, and the input from, from this community to create a, you know, a structure, a set of capabilities, and then a testing of those capabilities so that individuals who wanna work in this area they go train, they, they take a test based on these capabilities, and they get a seal of approval to go and work in this area. And, um, you know, that becomes like a calling card. It becomes an excellent accru- recruitment tool for companies like Charger Health or any company that, that is going to, to do this work. And, and I want to build a little bit off of something that Yvette said. Samantha Ortega from the Charger Health team and I authored a, a white paper on this. The whole idea of stackable credentials and, and providing a career path, I think, is, is something that's really important. You know, you can become certified as a, uh, you know, an electric vehicle supply equipment field technician. That can lead to a lot of other things, not only in charging, but I think there are multiple fields that are opening up in this area, in the area of, you know, sustainable transportation, that I think this work prepares people for in, in you know, ways that we didn't really think about you know, um, un, until now. Um, and I'll give you an example. You know, we, we hear a lot of the same pain points around battery development, right? There's not enough people to do battery development. The individuals that are coming through the, the, the Charger Help training and the SAE certification those individuals could build up into a career of battery development because they are understanding at the point of use what's happening with the battery. And, you know, batteries, lithium-ion battery creation, the workforce for that is probably going to have to grow by 10, 10x between now and, I think, 2030, which is like seven years away, which might as well be tomorrow. And if you can imagine, like 10x, you know, is a huge amount. So I think the work that we're doing together not only fills an immediate need for qualified people from all sorts of backgrounds to have access to great jobs in the, um, in the charging world, but also I, I think it can be a stepping stone to adjacent careers in areas like battery development charging and discharging and, um, you know, battery safety in general. So uh, I, I think, you know, I, I try and think really broadly across a whole spectrum of things, but these things are all connected because they're all developing at the same time. How important, Frank, is it that 
industry, I repeat, industry recognizes the certification. How, how important is that for the individual that's going to go through the, the Charger Help program? It's hugely important because if, if you prove that you have mastered the, the skills and you have the competencies, that's like ultimate workforce readiness. It means that you have the ability to, to, to do the job. Your, your time on task will be much sooner. The company doesn't have to necessarily worry about training you because you're coming in with a knowledge base that is a good business situation for them. It's a, it's, it's a recruitment tool um, for them and it creates opportunity for people you know, immediately. So I, I think it's, it's a win all the way around. Of that, with the certification, have you seen an increased demand in, in applicants say, okay, wow, well, I'm gonna certify now. Let, let's get to the front of the line. Have you seen a, a large increase in demand? The demand has been here. I have seen an increase in excitement around legitimacy, right? I, I think it will legitimize things. I think when we started off, we got the ONET, we worked with Department of Labor and got the ONET code, and that took us so far. But as the industry grows, as technology grows, uh, you know, trainings now are going to be taking place all over the country, much like what Camille said, like we don't own the training world. <laughs> People are building their own trainings, their own curriculum all across the country. I know because we've been asked to steer some of them, right? But all across the company, uh, the country, however, it's much like I, I use this example all the time. A nurse can be trained anywhere. You still have to take that one test to say we are all on the same page, no matter what hospital you're working in. <laughs> you know how to do these core things. And, you know, hospital to hospital, you may have to learn the culture of that particular region, space, you know. But generally, you know how to be a nurse. And that's what this credential, I believe, will do and really take the onus, while we're very proud of the pioneering that we've done, it'll take the onus uh, out of Charger Help's hand and it really becomes now a real equitable thing because you don't have to just go through Charger Help, right? Anyone, anywhere can get the training and they can all head to SAE to get the credential, which means that we all you know, agree that we understand, have learned these competencies, and we can now execute. And the passing of the exam will then legitimize that for anyone that wants to participate. So that's very, very exciting to me because that's real equity. That's real putting folks on the field and giving them an opportunity to compete. This is it. And so we're excited to be a part of it. Frank, if there's an individual listening here, perhaps they're in college or they want to learn a new skill, where can they go to sign up to start the certification prod, uh, process? Yeah, so we are in the process of designing uh, the capabilities and defining those. We still have a little bit more work to do with that, but somewhere in the middle of the year, SAE and, and Charger Help and our other partners in the community will announce that this, this certification exists. And um, we're really going to kind of shout it from the hilltops because I think there is a, um, there is a, a huge opportunity for people to kind of realize that, that they actually have access to really good jobs in areas that are only going to grow. And so, um, so we'll shout it from, from every possible rooftop. We'll, we'll put it on our website. We'll have a press conference. You know, I want as many people to know, and, and I think to, to Yvette's point, you know, if, if we have people banging down the doors for certification and we have 
people who are going, you know, there, there are multiple, you know, versions of Charger Health cropping up, you know, all over the place. We've done something right. Then, then, then the work that we've done m- means something and, and we've done something right. We've, we've, we're, we're, we've solved the problem and now other people want to be part of that solution. That's like, you know, to me, that's like thumbs up all the way around. It's thumbs up all the way around. And Camille, I want to highlight something that I think is very special for Charger Help. In addition to the partnership with SAE, you have a partnership with Tesla. They're the 10,000-pound gorilla inside of charging, and you have the partnership with them. You're helping them improve the reliability of their charging stations in California. That's a very big partnership in addition to SAE. Could you talk about that partnership, please? Yeah, I think that the the neat thing about Tesla is that they're also really interested in workforce development. Like we've like been super close to like their workforce development arm and just really thinking about how do they prepare people for the future. And so honestly, I think the first, you know, which is, I can say all these things because it was approved in the press release. I can't say anything outside of what's approved in the press release. <laughs> <laughs> but what was approved in the press release, right, was that, you know, we, we, we wanted to... Um, support all of the efforts that they have because they do have you know high reliability and to do um, a campaign you know just assessing their overall um stations in california and then provide that data to them but most importantly i think what's at the crux of what they're looking at doing is really the workforce right and and they're and i think that they you know members of their team find value in how we're thinking about you know the the workforce so that's been really cool you're doing good camille you're creating value what is the future of Charger Help? How do you see it growing? How do you see it scaling? Where do you see the company in the future? Yo, oh, why? If I started laughing, why are you laughing? Why this you laughing? is like the million dollar question. <laughs> She's like, what are we doing? <laughs> We're taking over the world. <laughs> I told folks, I was like, I am a, a one track pony. Uh, so right now, <laughs> what I'm focused on is making sure we get um, quality data in order to be helpful for mass EV adoption for the uptime of the stations and and for the training, you know, and, and retention of technicians. I think what comes next, we will see, you know, 2023 for me is all about data aggregation. We did our 8,000th work order a couple of weeks ago, and that was only done in like a little bit yes, less than a year. And so like, that's crazy to me. But we need more data. We need more information. We need to be like, you know, help steer more of these conversations, be more in partnership with more folks. So that way we're helpful. And then what comes after that? I mean, we might have to do a part two in December, but that's what I'm focused on right now. <laughs> Continue to, to be proud. Continue to be proud as well, Sadia. that in your opinion, what's the future of charge help? You're building out a workforce that's going to have a lot of positive impact on communities across the world. We want people to know who Charger Help is. The very, very rich history and how we started is super important to me. I hope it gives hope and encouragement to other people. I hope we make a dent in in our in our equity efforts that I, I believe that the entire industry is really trying to to do right now. And I just hope that we serve as a blueprint for doing good business, um, working with good people, being fair. Me and me and Camille and I, we have plans to be very rich, but we believe we can do that and not pe- treat people horribly. And we don't have to pay you $10 in order 
for, you know, wealth to, to accumulate other places. And I think those are the things that people don't want to talk about. <laughs> and I hope that us being transparent about, you know, really our goals for our company to be super successful, to be very profitable, to be very helpful, right? To be very equitable um, and treat people well. I, I think the companies that, you know, 50 years from when they start, the folks that work there are proud that they work there. You know, my my grandfather worked for Boeing and he would tell people, you know, I worked for Boeing, you know, <laughs> and according to him, Boeing was it, you know, so shout out to Boeing. But, you know, <laughs> and that was something he was very proud of. So I, I just want the folks that work at Charger Help to know that really, really they had impact and to be proud of the work that we're doing and to take over the world. Being proud goes a, a long way. You can do a lot of good when you're proud of the work you're doing. You should very, be very proud of the work that you're doing with Charger Help. Frank, the stuff that you're doing in SAE is going to have a positive impact on society as we look to lower commissions. Uh, sorry, we look to lower emissions and, and decarbonize. Yvette, Camille, Frank, as we look to wrap up this insightful conversation, what would you like our listeners to take away with them? Yvette, we'll start with you, please. I would like listeners to take away that Charger Help is here. And Charger Help, while we have great workforce development efforts and a lot going on, we are a business and uh, we are growing this business. So we are always looking for uh, partners and customers and we welcome people to learn about Charger Help, get in contact with us, visit chargerhelp.com. We have an absolutely brilliant product, RAS, Reliability as a Service. Um, and that's when we really start moving into the implementation of reliability when people actually invest in it. So I just encourage people to check us out and really, really put let's put some actual movement to reliability by getting our charging stations covered and making sure we have a workforce to support it. Reliability of charging stations one of the key ways to scale EVs. Camille, your thoughts, please. Yeah, I, I think one, what I would love for folks to take away is um, this uptime problem, it, it's big. And, and let's create measurements that properly capture that information so we can, you know, move towards the goal, which is a more sustainable transportation, which right now is electric vehicles, right? So let's keep that goal at heart. Like, of course, everyone wants to have successful businesses and make a lot of money, all of these things. But like, at the end of the day... <laughs> The planet is burning and we need to like be able to move about the cabin in a, in a more sustainable way. So how are we thinking about that in the decisions, in the ways that we, you know, we do things? Well said. Frank, your thoughts, please. Yeah, something really similar. So, um, so I'm in a program at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology in sustainability. And um, uh, uh, the professor, one of the professors teaching the program said something really impactful. He said, so I got to be straight with you guys. What we do in the next seven years will determine the next hundred, right? In terms of climate change. And so, okay, that's, that's pretty profound. So second statement is that the transportation industry in the United States accounts for about 27% of greenhouse gas emissions. Globally, it's about 25%. It's the single largest source of greenhouse gas emissions. So this is, this is uh, what we're talking about is a question of business. It's a question of technology. It's also a question of what happens to our children and our grandchildren. And like, that's not like hundreds of years in the future. That's like, 
you know, that that's the generation that is coming up and the generation after that. And so um, so that's kind of the stakes of all of this. Right. You know, when you want to try and kind of see it from the big picture, everything that we're talking about um, in this session is really about trying to do something in the next seven or eight years that actually helps to improve the trajectory of the next hundred and build better, more fair lives for our children and the children that come after them. I'll summarize it this way. Invest today to decarbonize. Invest today to decarbonize. Today is tomorrow. Tomorrow is today. And the future is the Charger Help SAE partnership. Evette, Camille, Frank, thank you so much for coming on SAE Tomorrow Today. Thanks for having us. Thank you for listening to SAE Tomorrow Today. If you've enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more, please kindly rate, review, and let us know what topics you'd like for us to explore next. Be sure to join us next week for the second episode of SAE Tomorrow Today Unplugged, where I'll share my insights into markets and my opinion on the future of mobility. SAE International makes no representations as to the accuracy of the information presented in this podcast. The information and opinions are for general information only. SAE International does not endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any information, product, process, service, or organization presented or mentioned in this podcast.